Samaveta Bhaktarinda Ki Jai Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale. Srimati Bhaktivedanta Swami Nuti Namane. Namaste Saraswati Deve. Goravani Bhutani Nirvasesa Sanivadi Paskatyadi Sitani. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha. Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sagana Raghunatham Vitam Sam Sajivam. Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam. Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sagana Lavita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha. Panchakalpati Vishaki Pasamadevatapati Tanam Pavanevi Vaishnava. Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jaya Nityananda Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jaya Nityananda Jai Dwaita Chandra Jaya Gora Bhaktarinda September 16th, 2023, Bhaktivedanta Manor in the UK. And we're going to be reading from Chaitanya Charitamrita, Madhulila, Chapter 9, Lord Chaitanya's Travels to the Holy Places. We're reading from texts 225 to 240, and I think 240 is on the board, or 239 to 240. So I'm just going to read through the English. 225 translation. After visiting Malara Desha, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu went to Tamala Kartika and then to Vetapani. There he saw the temple of Raghunath, Lord Ramachandra, and passed the night. Srila Prabhupada's purport. Tamala Kartika is 44 miles south of Tirunavelli and 2 miles south of Ramanavali Mountain. It is located within the jurisdiction of Tovalai. At Tamalakartika is a temple of Subramanya, or Lord Kartika, the son of Lord Shiva. So, any of you here been to or from South India? Anybody? So, Kartikeya worship is very popular in South India. Vedapani, or Vatapani, is north of Kaila in the Tamil Nadu state. It is also known as Bhutapandi and, was in, and is within the jurisdiction of the Tobala district. It is understood that formerly there was a deity of Lord Ramachandra there. Later the deity was replaced with the deity of Lord Shiva, known as Rameshwar or Bhutanata. So going on, this is 226. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was accompanied by his servant Krishnadas, who is also sometimes called Kala Krishnadas. He was a Brahmana, but he met with the Bhattaharis there. So uh, these Bhattaharis are Brahmana priests who practice black arts. <coughs> with women, the Bhattaharis allured the Brahmana Krishnadas, who was simple and gentle. By virtue of their bad association, they polluted his intelligence. So I actually know of members of the Krishna Consciousness Movement who have gotten polluted by people messing with black arts. Any of you know of people like that? 
Recently, on my travels, I met another devotee. It's happened a few times. Who told me that she got into mystic kind of stuff and ended up uh, working with some teachers and mystic yoga and ended up becoming contaminated by lower entities and black arts and how she was on this long, long healing journey to get free. Allured by the Bhattaharis, Krishna Das went to their place early in the morning. The Lord also went there very quickly just to find him. Upon reaching their community, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu asked the Bhattaharis, Why are you keeping my Brahmana assistant? I am in the renounced order of life, and so are you. <laughs> Often, if we want to convince somebody of something, we try to find some commonality with them, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Lord Vishnu did this with Rikasura when Rikasura was trying to kill Lord Shiva. He said, Oh, son of Shukani. And Rikasura said, Oh, a friend of my family. Hmm? I am in the renounced order of life, and so are you, yet you are purposely giving me pain, and I do not see any good logic in this. So he's first appealing to them, you know, we're, we're similar, and you're hurting me, why are you hurting me? Now, they could have responded nicely, and then the following would not have had to have happened. And so this is a very good example of how Krishna... I would say pretty much always tries the soft, gentle approach first. It's interesting in our Hare Krishna movement, whenever anyone goes through some difficulty in life, we say, oh, you're getting purified. <laughs> I always find that amusing. And I've thought about it, you know, why do we always associate suffering with purification? And are there other ways to get purified without suffering? Yes. My personal conviction is that the suffering is a last resort. Just like good parents, they don't want to give a punishment to their child. Even a simple punishment like go take a time out in your room. You know, Parents want to use other means first. And they'll only go, isn't it right if they're good parents? So Krishna is also like that. Actually, there's a statement in the first canto where Srila Prabhupada says that the Lord with regret punishes the demons. So I always use this example that if Krishna wants to bring his cows from one place to another, what does he do first? He calls them by name. He actually has a string of japa beads made out of jewels, and he calls the name of his cows. So first he calls them, and then if they don't come, then what's he going to do? Bugle would be third, and he has his bugle on today, I noticed. But before bugle, he would flute. And then after that bugle, then he has a stick. So I often say, when Krishna calls your name, hey, Armila, get it together. I should listen then. Right? And then there's a flute, and then there's a horn, and then there's a stick. Okay, okay. And sometimes, of course, we don't even listen when there's a stick. So Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu asked them nicely. Upon hearing Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, all the Bhattaharis came running from all sides with weapons in their hand, desiring to hurt the Lord. Bad move. However, their weapons fell from their hands and struck their own bodies. 
This is what happens whenever we, whenever we try to hurt the Lord or the Lord's devotees or actually anybody. It boomerangs. We really don't have the ability to hurt anybody, ever. If we are able to hurt someone, it's only because they deserve that by their karma. Just like we've all had the experience of trying to help people and it doesn't work. I can't help or hurt anybody more than their karma, unless I'm working spiritually, that's different. If I'm working spiritually, I can give people help that's causeless mercy that they don't deserve. But if you've ever wished ill for someone and nothing bad happened to them, that means they didn't deserve it. Or I'm sure it's happened to us. People have tried to do good for us and it didn't work. And maybe people tried to hurt us and it didn't work. Well, when we, when we try to do good for others, what happens is we get good karma, even if we're unsuccessful. And if I try to do ill for others, even if unsuccessful, I get bad karma. One place Prabhupada talks about this. He says, you fool. You cannot do any harm to others. You're only harming yourself. So the weapons fell. That's not always quite this dramatic, though. This is, this is very dramatic. Could you picture the scene? Right? They're running at him with weapons, and all of a sudden their weapons come out of their hand and start attacking their own bodies. However, their weapons fell from their hands and struck their own bodies. When some of the Bhattaharis were thus cut to pieces, the others ran away in the four directions. So this is also, this is low grade of intelligence, but you, at least you're seeing what's happening to others, and you go, oops, I better not do that. Right? We do not have to personally experience everything in order to learn. We can also learn from seeing what others are doing right and what others are doing wrong. While there was much roaring and crying at the Bhattahari community, so there was now total chaos, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu grabbed Krishna Das by the hair and took him away. So this one statement Prabhupada makes that once we start this progress, Krishna will drag us to success. But again, better not to be dragged. Like, oh great! Really? That very night, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, okay, actually before we go on here, so this is where the story ends here. It will be taken up a little later when Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu returns to Jagannath Puri and he goes to Sarvabhama Bhattacharya and he says, you gave me this servant, Kalakrishna Das, but he got allured by the Bhattahari. I have, I have no more use for him. I don't want him anymore. And it, what strikes me about that is that continuing here, he doesn't reject him here. So he continues, Mahaprabhu, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu continues on his tour with Kalakrishna Das. Kalakrishna Das goes back to serving him. So it's apparently he's fully accepting him back, but when he gets back to Jagannath Puri, he's like, I don't want anything more to do with this person. Which is quite interesting. And then Kalakrishna Das starts to cry. And so the other devotees, including Lord Nityananda, take mercy on Kalakrishna Das and they give him the service of going to Navadweep and letting everyone know that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has returned from South India because he was gone for how long? Six years. Six years, I think. Yeah? And they didn't have, you know, WhatsApp in those days. So they had to send actually a messenger. And so what happened was Kala Krishna Das went to Navadweep and he went from place to place and told all the devotees, starting with Sachi Mata, 
that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had returned, and all the devotees were very happy with him. So he was able to get the mercy of all the devotees, and Prabhupada remarks in that connection that the devotees are kinder than the Lord. Usually. Okay, going on here, that very night, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his assistant Krishna Das arrived at the bank of the Payasvini River. They took their bath and they went to see the temple of Adi Keshava. Have any of you been to that temple? That's really far When the Lord saw the Adi Keshava temple, he was immediately overwhelmed with ecstasy. Offering various obeisances and prayers, he chanted and danced. All the people there were greatly astonished to see the ecstatic pastimes of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. They all received the Lord very well. In the temple of Adikeshava, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu discussed spiritual matters among highly advanced devotees. While there, he find, found a chapter of the Brahma Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was greatly happy to find a chapter of that scripture and symptoms of ecstatic transformation, trembling, tears, perspiration, trance, and jubilation were manifest in his body. So those symptoms are called the what bhavs. Sattvika bhavs. So in order to experience rasa or taste, one has to have five bhavas combining Kind of like a recipe where you have to have certain ingredients. You follow? You want to bake something, you have to have butter and sugar and flour and some leavening agent. And if any of them are missing, your preparation will not work. So you have to have five parts of rasa. Does anyone know what they are? Yes? Staibav, yes. Excellent. Yes. Can I tell us what they mean? Okay, so the stibab is the, the main component. Stibab is the main component. Like if you're making a smoothie and your main component is bananas. And, and those are like, they have, within stibab there's like five, five. Five primary and seven secondary. Now many times we use the word rasa, as, and Prabhupada sometimes does this as well, as a synonym for stibab. Like we'll say, the friendship rasa. But friendship is a staibhav. It's the basic relationship. Okay, and what does the other ones mean? What Mahaprabhu is exhibiting now. These are the involuntary expressions. So let's say you have a basic staibhav. Stai means to stay. You have a basic staibhav, a friendship with someone. And you see them, and without intentionally thinking about it, you may start to cry if you hadn't seen them for five years or something. Right? Okay. That's the involuntary. And then what's the other one to be? Vibhav is what stimulates the Steinbach. So again, if, you're, if you have a friend you haven't seen, like so many of you are my friends, I haven't seen you for so long because of the crazy things that happened in the world the last few years. Right? And so when you see your friend, your friend is the Vishaya, they're the object. And let's say you see your friend with other friends, other mutual friends. They're the ashraya, they're the repository. And then things related to your friends, your friend's shoes, your friend's manner of speaking, 
those are the udipanas. So all of those are the stimulus, the vibhav, that brings out yours. Okay, and what else? Well, what happens, yes, the vibhav stimulates the stibhav, which produces a state of sattva in the heart. That's why it's called sattva kapav. That's not sattva gun. It has a state of sattva that manifests as involuntary expressions and as anubhav, which are voluntary expressions. You may give your friend a hug. You may say, oh, my dear friend, it's so nice to see you after so long. And then the last is? Vyavichari or sanchari bhavs. These are transitory emotions that combine with your basic friendship. So you see your friend and you may also feel joy or you may feel curiosity. What have you been doing the last five years? And when all, all of those have to be present. So the basic relationship, what stimulates that relationship, how you express that relationship involuntarily, how you express it voluntarily, and the various transitory emotions that accompany that relationship. And when all of those are together, we experience rasa. So here, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is shown the sattvaka bhavs. Okay, text 239 to 240, which is on the board. Siddhanta Shastra Nahi Brahma Samhita Rasama. Siddhanta Shastra Nahi Brahma Alpakshare kahe siddhanta apara Sakala Vaishnava Shastra Majaya Tisara My apologies to any Bengalis for butchering your language. What word do you all see there twice? Siddhanta Shastra Conclusive scripture. Nahi. There is not. Brahma Samhitara Sama. Like the scripture Brahma Samhita. Govinda Mahima. Of the glories of Lord Govinda. Gyanera. Of knowledge. Parama. Final. Karana. Cause. Alpa Akshare briefly Kahe expresses Siddhanta conclusion Apara unlimited Sakala all Vaishnava Shastra devotional scriptures Madje among Atisara very essential You've noticed here that twice it's talking about something that's condensed. That's the highest and something that's condensed. Srila Prabhupada's translation. There is no scripture equal to the Brahma Samhita as far as the final spiritual conclusion is concerned. Indeed, that scripture is the supreme revelation of the glories of Lord Govinda, for it reveals the topmost knowledge about him. Since all conclusions are briefly presented in the Brahma Samhita, it is essential among all the Vaishnava literatures. Srila Prabhupada's purport. And I'm going to ask you all, without looking, to see if everybody can repeat at least one of the things that Srila Prabhupada says in this purport is discussed in the Brahma Samhita. Okay? Without looking. 
The Brahma Samhita is a very important scripture. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu acquired the which chapter? From the Adi Keshava Temple. In that fifth chapter, the philosophical conclusion of a chinta beta beta tattva, simultaneous oneness and difference, is presented. The chapter also presents methods of devotional service. The 18th syllable beta kim discourses on the soul, the super soul, and fruit of activity, an explanation of Kama Gayatri, Kama Bija, and the original Mahavishnu, and a detailed description of the spiritual world, specifically Goloka Vrindavana. The Brahma Samhita also explains the demigod Ganesh, Gaurdakashaya Vishnu, the origin of the Gayatri Mantra, the form of Govinda and his transcendental position and abode, the living entities, the highest goal, the goddess Durga, the meaning of austerity, the five gross elements, love of Godhead, impersonal Brahman, the initiation of Lord Brahman, and the vision of transcendental love, enabling one to see the Lord. The steps of devotional service are also explained. The mind, yoga nidra, the goddess of fortune, devotional service in spontaneous ecstasy, incarnations beginning with Lord Ramachandra, deities, the conditioned soul and its duties, the truth about Lord Vishnu, prayers, Vedic hymns, Lord Shiva, the Vedic literature, personalism and impersonalism, good behavior, and many other subjects are also discussed. There is also a description of the sun and the universal form of the Lord. All these subjects are conclusively explained in a nutshell in the Brahma Samhita. Okay, without looking. One thing. Any volunteers? Yes? Lord Chaitanya uh, acquired the fifth chapter of the Brahma Samhita. <laughs> Does that count? We have, a, we have to debate later whether or not that counts. Achinja Beta Beta Tattva. Demigod Ganesh. Five gross elements. Yoga Nidra. Form of Krishna. Hmm? Personalism and impersonalism. Personalism and impersonalism, yes. Oh, look at this. He's going to quote the sloka. If I had Maha, you would get a burfi for that one. Yes. Brahman. Brahman. Yes. Love of Godhead. Yes. Description of the spiritual world, especially Galok Vrindavan. Yes. Origin of the Gayatri Mantra. Yes. Kama Gayatri. Well, there were two different. Good behavior. Yes. Lord Brahma's initiation. Yes. Yes. Hmm? Mind. The mind, excellent, yes. God is Lakshmi, yes. Ganesh, but we had that. The 18 syllable mantra. 18 syllable mantra, yes. Truth of Lord Vishnu. Hmm? The truth of Lord Vishnu, yes. Spiritual body, yes. Hmm? I'm sorry. Super soul. Super soul, yes, yes. About the sun god. About the sun god. You're going to tell me that one too? Yet Chakshuresha Sabitara Sakalagrahana. Yes, the living entities. Excellent. Yes. Goddess Durga. Anything you want to know. 
duties of the living entities. Anything you want to know in one place in the Brahma Samhita, fifth chapter, in a short form. Pretty nice, huh? All right. Siddhanta Shastra Nahi Brahma Samhita Rasatsama Govinda Mahima Janera Padma Karana Alpakshara Kahi Siddhanta Apara Sakala Vaishnava Shastra Madhye Ati Sara. There is no scripture equal to the Brahma Samhita as far as the final spiritual conclusion is concerned. Indeed, that scripture is a supreme revelation of the glories of Lord Govinda, for it reveals the topmost knowledge about him. Since all conclusions are briefly presented in the Brahma Samhita, it is essential among all the Vaishnava scriptures. So some kind of concise statement of Siddhanta exists in all of the Sampradayas or lines that follow the Vedic scriptures. Now, although the Brahma Samhita is given here as concise statements of Siddhanta, it's a little too cumbersome to use for some purposes for which one would use a concise statement of Siddhanta. And we'll get to that in a moment. So here in the, all these verses we've been reading, we've been reading about the practices of devotion, especially going on pilgrimages, visiting temples, and so forth. We read about the um, difficulty and the redemption of Kala Krishna Das, the mercy shown to him by Lord Chaitanya, we hinted at what will come later, the mercy shown to him by the devotees. And now we're looking at Siddhanta, understanding Siddhanta. And I thought we would look at the relationship between these. The practice of devotion, the understanding of Siddhanta, and getting the mercy of the Lord and his devotees. How do they relate to each other? So the practice of devotion... Now, many times, we in the Hare Krishna movement think that everything's just about what you do. We especially feel like this when it comes to what we now call outreach. That if I can just get someone to chant Hare Krishna, or I can just get someone to see the deities, or I can just get someone to touch the book, or I can just get somebody to take some prasadam, if I can just get someone to do something, that that will change their life. Correct? And we often are looking at ourselves and judging by what we do. And we often judge other devotees also by what they do. How many rounds do you chant? How many slokas do you read? What do you do? All right. So this may depress some of you. Is it possible to do all the right things and have it be useless? Can you give me some examples of where Srila Prabhupada talks about that? Or where our acharyas talk about that? Yeah? If you follow the Right, okay, but, but Varnashram isn't, isn't the Angas of Bhakti, so. Then you're in the Shrama Devi, he came along. But we're talking about the Angas of Bhakti. But that was, that was a great answer, but it was kind of the right answer to the wrong question. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that our acharyas will talk about how the mantra can just be the alphabet. You've read that, right? Yeah. Yeah. What about staying like professional 
you know, Pujari's profession. That doesn't mean you give them charity, by the way. Please, it doesn't mean that they accept charity. But it means someone just doing it as a job. Like I read about this Christian minister who became an atheist. And he kept being a Christian minister because he didn't know what else to do. And that was how he made his livelihood. And he was feeling very conflicted about it. And he said that one day his wife said to him, look, if you can be a professional Christian, why can't you be a professional atheist? So then he started te teaching atheism all over the world. My point is, while he was teaching Christianity, but being an atheist, did his preaching have any potency? No. And, and even Prabhupada will say, if you hear from people like that, you're hearing the Bhagavatam. You're sitting and hearing the Bhagavatam. But what does he compare it to? Milk touched by the lips of a serpent. It's milk, but because it has poison in it, it actually poisons you. Not only can it be not spiritually effective, but it can actually be harmful. We were just reading in, in Soho from the CC about, uh, from Adi 7, about Madhya people who study the scriptures and twist some weird interpretation. So you're studying the scriptures and you come out thinking Prabhupada was talking about how this one Mayavada philosopher preached that Lord Vishnu was a product of ignorance. So you're apparently studying the scriptures and Prabhupada said such people will stay in the material world perpetually. But you're actually just going in the opposite direction. He talks about people using the Shalagam Shila to crack nuts. Right? People just showing the deity so they can collect, you know, here's some deity so they can collect some donation. Yes. So it's possible to have all the practices have either no effect or have a negative effect. Now, often we don't like to think about that. But if we're thinking that the practices we do automatically must have an effect, no matter how we approach them, then we are making the mistake of thinking that the universe is mechanical. And materialistic people like to study the laws of the universe so they can control it. They're thinking, you know, let me understand all the laws so I can control it. They don't understand that everything is run by a person. And all the processes we are dealing with are persons. The Shastra is a person. The deities are persons. The holy name is a person. Personal also is personal. Everything we're doing is personal. And so whether or not we get an effect from what we're doing depends on how we're relating with the person of that process. Just like we're... Um, we're teaching in our Krishna Meditations book out there in the seminar I'll be giving tomorrow morning, Krishna Loving from 10 to 12. And Krishna says, I am the ritual. I am the ritual. I am the sacrifice. I am the ingredients of the sacrifice. And just like for ourselves, if people approach us wrongly, we don't reciprocate, correct? Or we may reciprocate the opposite of what they want. We may tell them to go, to, go away. We may tell I don't want anything to do So the processes in and of themselves, if done offensively, 
or done without the proper understanding may not yield the desired result. In fact, they may yield an opposite result. There's an interesting section in the Nectar Devotion where Prabhupada says that one may think that these statements that Rupa Goswami is quoting are over-exaggerations. You know, you can take the Charnamrita one time and you become self-realized. He says they are not over-exaggerations, but they're true for some people and not others. These things have that potency, but it depends on how you're relating with them. Now, it doesn't just depend on how the receiver is relating, it also depends on how the giver is relating. For example, we go out on Harinam and we give the holy name to people who have no understanding and no proper consciousness, but if we have the proper consciousness, then the holy name is reciprocating with us to reveal himself to those people. Does that make sense? This is explained by Vishnu Chakravati Thakur in Madhurya Kadambani. And is very much related to this, to the next factor of mercy. That even though Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, when he got back to Jagannath Puri, says, I want nothing more to do with this Kala Krishna does, the devotee showed him mercy. And therefore he was still engaged in devotional service. And although it isn't explained there, I would assume that eventually Mahaprabhu took him back. So the mercy of the Lord flows through the mercy of the devotee, according to Vishnu Chakravati Thakur, because the Lord is neutral, he is unbiased. I was just hearing Prabhupada say this morning that Krishna gives you what you want. If you want to forget him, he gives you forgetfulness. If you want to find him, he gives you knowledge. So for people in general that aren't doing anything spiritual, Krishna is not giving them any transcendental knowledge. But the devotees are thinking, I really care about these people. I really care. Krishna, I want you to give them benefit. And therefore, when we give them prasada, when we give them the holy name, when we give them the books. And ultimately, that, of course, is from Srila Prabhupada. That Srila Prabhupada's potency and Srila Prabhupada's desire, if we allow it to flow through us, then the personalities of these various practices, they reciprocate with those people. And those people get at least an abbas. They get at least a reflection or a shadow or something they get some transcendental experience that they have not earned and maybe not even desired, which is the way that we can go beyond karma, which is the way that we can give people value beyond karma and is the meaning of causeless mercy. Now, all of us need this mercy in our own practice. If we don't think we need this mercy in our own practice, then we're seeing things mechanistically. If I can just tick off the boxes, like on a sudden chart, you know, okay, you know, where's my prema? My prophet explains that this doesn't even operate in ordinary things. If you're going to get a PhD, you can't just tick the boxes. The, The other professors have to agree. Or in a courtroom, why is there a judge? The judge isn't just to keep order in the courtroom. You could have a a low-grade person to do that. But the judge can adjust how the law is executed for a particular person. There's some leeway that the judge has. So we are ultimately dependent on mercy, and Srila Prabhupada one time at least defines the bhakti process as distinct from the other forms of yoga as being, I'm trying to please the Lord so he will show me mercy. I'm not thinking I'm earning my way back to God. In fact, 
that is not really possible. Now, in order to understand our need for mercy, we have to understand what grievous offenders we are, which is extremely difficult to understand. Because, at least for myself, I'm extremely proud, and so I think I'm a very wonderful person, and how could I possibly be a grievous offender? So I don't need mercy, I'm, I'm a wonderful person, why should I need mercy? But in order to understand that one needs mercy, one has to understand I'm a grievous offender. And to understand I'm a grievous offender, one has to be aware of the constant grace and benefit that Krishna is pouring on all of us at every moment without our deserving it at all. I mean, the Christians have an idea that if you don't believe in God in one life, you go to an eternal lake of fire with no possibility of redemption. Why couldn't Krishna take rebellious souls and just put us all in some state of suspended animation forever? Why does he have to make this whole illusory world where we can run around trying to fulfill our desires? He doesn't have to do that. And everything he's giving us here, everything he's giving us here to fulfill our desires, it's all mercy. The sun, the water, the fruits, the vegetables, and, and so much more than we need. We don't need 40 kinds of apples. <laughs> we don't even need flowers. I mean, what government puts flowers in the prison? You ever heard of that? Government putting bouquets of flowers in the prison? So Krishna's giving us so much that we honestly, we don't deserve We've tur- we're turning away from him. Prabhupada says 24 hours, Krishna's giving at every moment imperceptibly a chance to turn towards him. Are we doing that? I mean, are we doing that? Are we turning to Krishna at every moment? At the end of the day, how many minutes a day did I remember Krishna? Did I remember Krishna every time I chanted Hare Krishna? Did I remember Krishna every time I saw the deeds? What to speak of as we're running through our lives. And every moment we're not aware of him. It's, we need mercy. We need mercy. And th- this humility is an essential part of bhakti. Without this humility we cannot advance. And we especially need mercy from the devotees because as Prabhupada talks about in relation to the Kala Krishna Dust pastime later, God can be a little tough sometimes. I, I think he was a little tough with Kala Krishna Dust, wasn't he? Okay, I have no more use for him. So he can be a little tough. But the devotees can be very soft-hearted. Yeah. And it's only mercy that the deities reveal themselves to us, or the holy name reveals himself to us, or prasadam reveals himself. I mean, we've all had these experiences, isn't it? Sometimes you eat prasadam and you're like, wow. And sometimes you see the deities, you're like, oh, wow. And sometimes you're in the cure trying to like, oh, wow. And you think, well, if I just chanted the same tune. <laughs> and then you realize it was mercy, yeah? Right? All right, now what about Siddhanta? What's the role of philosophy? And Prabhupada says, religion without philosophy, philosophy without religion. 
If you have religion without philosophy, it's just sentimentality or fanaticism. Philosophy without religion is just speculation. You have to have both. Why do we have to have philosophy? Without philosophy, it's very hard for us to enthuse our practices with the right attitude. It's hard for us to even ask for mercy. It's hard for us to develop humility if we don't understand things philosophically. And you know, our Hare Krishna practices are not radically different from anyone else's spiritual practices. In every religion, people pray, they study scripture, they light flames, they go to holy places. Am I correct? The basic practices of all religions are, in, in their essence, are, are pretty much the same. Our philosophy allows us to have a sankalpa. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it also possible to do spiritual practices and get a non-spiritual result because you have a different sankalpa? Do the demons do that? You can worship the Lord and chant Vedic mantras like we have these Bhattaharis who are the these tantric priests. They are using the Vedic mantras for evil purposes. And we can do that, by the way, even without practices. So having the right philosophy allows us to have the right sankalpa. It has us to, allows us to have the right goal, and it matters. My favorite story in this regard is about Raghunath Bhatti Goswami when he was traveling from South India to see Mahaprabhu in Jagannath Puri, and along the way he met this man, Ramdas Vilas, who was worshipping Lord Ramachandra, chanting Ram, 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 constantly. And he helped Raghunath Bhatti Goswami. He carried his bags for him. But when he went to Jagannath Puri, Lord Chaitanya neglected him. And Prabhupada explains it's because Ramdas Vilas was just always thinking, I am Ram, I am Ram, I am Ram. He had the wrong sankalpa. And the right mood. To have the right mood. Not just as some official karma stamping out procedure. You know, well, I don't want to get any, any karma for the carrots that I'm killing, so. I'm just going to stick it in front of my deity. Thank you for removing the karma. Okay. And I'm sure Krishna's going, no. But by studying the Siddhanta, we have the right consciousness. And that also invokes the mercy of the Lord and the devotees. Now, it's particularly useful to have a concise statement of Siddhanta. That's especially useful. So the Brahma Samhita, the fifth chapter, is very, very useful. It's a concise statement of Siddhanta, as Prabhupada says, explained in a nutshell. So why is that useful? Well, first of all, the Bhagavatam like is very large and covers a huge amount of topics, and there's a lot in the Bhagavatam that is just supportive of Siddhanta. And there's even a lot in the Bhagavatam that is apparently opposed to Sinanta. Just like Kamsa at the wrestling arena after the wrestlers are killed, he issues an order 
Take all the wealth from Krishna and Balaram and throw them out of the city. Okay, it's in the Bhagavatam. It's in the 10th canto. It's in the form of a direct instruction. Is that Siddhanta? Should we take all the jewels from the deities and throw them out? It's opposed to Siddhanta, isn't it? Do you follow? Yes? But there it is. In the Bhagavatam. You want to get even deeper. So before that, in the Bhagavatam, in the 10th canto, in Vrindavan, spoken by Krishna to the highest devotees, he tells them something opposed to Siddhanta. What's that? He tells them just worship work, don't worship God. So it may be very confusing. If you're just reading the Bhagavatam, it's spoken by Krishna in the 10th canto, in Vrindavan, to his Prima Bhaktas, it must be the right thing to do. So it's very helpful to have a concise statement of Siddhanta, which helps us then understand all the other statements of the scripture and all the statements of Guru and all the statements of the Acharyas. Now, the Brahma Samhita is very useful for that purpose, but even the Brahma Samhita is a little long and complicated to use as an effective, what we would call, hermeneutic tool. So in teaching hermeneutics, which I had hoped to do here in the UK, but it didn't work out, uh, one of the main things that we use is a concise statement of Siddhanta. So Srila Madhvacharya, through his disciple Vyastirta, made a list of ten items of Siddhanta. Then Srila Baladeva Jibhushana, who is really the link between the Madhva Sampradaya and the Gaudiya Sampradaya, he took that work of uh, Srila Vyastirta and he adjusted it a little bit to reflect more of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's understanding and he came up with his concise statements of Siddhanta, ten points. Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur took this work of Baladeva Jibhushan and he added the component of rasa and this is the Dasmula Tattva. So Dasmula Tattva is extremely useful as what we call a hermeneutic tool, where if you take any statement from the Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Charitamrita, any of the works of Acharya, Srila Goswami, Srila Sanatana Goswami, etc., any of the statements of Srila Prabhupada, and you want to explain what they mean and how to apply them, you can compare it to these concise statements of Siddhanta. Just understanding this one hermeneutical technique solves a huge amount of the problems we have with certain statements from Srila Prabhupada, our Acharyas, and the scriptures. Because all these statements go into one of four categories. They're a restatement of Siddhanta. They're just simply restating Siddhanta. Or, by Siddhanta, by the way, here, because Siddhanta can mean the conclusion of an argument, like, do you want samosas or pakoras, and we decide on pakoras, that's a Siddhanta. The conclusion. But here we're talking about things that are universal, eternal, and transcontextually true. They're true for all people, all living beings, in all places, and all times. So all the statements from our acharyas, shastra, guru, are going to fit in one of four categories. They're going to be a restatement of Siddhanta. They're going to be something that is universally, eternally, transcontextually true. Or they're going to be something that's universally and eternally true, but it's contextualized. It's put into a certain context. Or it's going to be something like that supports Siddhanta, like stand and fight. Stand and fight is not an eternal, universal, transcontextual truth. Otherwise, why are we all sitting and nobody's fighting? 
But it's supporting Siddhanta, it's supporting the concept of surrender to the Lord, it's supporting the concept of serving the Lord. You follow? Then there's things that oppose Siddhanta, like Kamsa telling us to take the deity's ornaments and throw them out. And once you understand that, then you can use other hermeneutical principles and tools to understand those statements. So a concise statement of Siddhanta is essential in order to understand Guru Sadhu and Shastra, and it's also essential in order to enthuse and enliven what we're doing with the proper mood, the proper consciousness, the proper sankalpa, so as to attract mercy, so that the, process, the processes we're doing are going to have the maximum <coughs> effectiveness. So that the time and energy that we're putting into our deity worship, our shastric study, our japa, our kirtan, our everything that we're doing in Krishna consciousness, that we will, will be in the maximum benefit. And our progress will be very swift and sure. We will not have obstacles in our progress. So, I don't know if we have time for questions. It's 8.35. So, does anybody have what's what's the cutoff time here? Nine o'clock on Saturday. Nine o'clock on oh my goodness, I'm early. I thought I was scandalously overtime. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Mike is nice. Okay. Especially for all the people who are... Is it on? A not turned on mic is just like spiritual practices devoid of devotion. It looks like it's the same thing, but it's not. Very good. We call that an object lesson. Yeah, excellent. Hare Krishna. Okay, so in uh, Brahma Samhita, Jiva Goswami's commentary, the, the, the text three, it's like you, you were talking about Brahma Samhita, is very concise. There's like an interesting statement in Jiva Goswami's commentary where it says, Krishna is Durga and Durga is Krishna, and anyone who sees any difference is like uh, going to be forever bound by samsara. So, oh, interesting. <laughs> so, so this is uh, what you're saying reminds me of where Srila Sanatana Goswami in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita explains the second offense exactly the opposite to the way we generally recite it in Iskand, where he says anyone who sees any difference between Lord Krishna and Lord Shiva is committing an offense. And there's a place in the Bhagavatam, I think it's in the second canto where Srila Prabhupada defines the second offense as seeing any difference between Krishna and his name and his form and his attributes. So actually just this morning, I was hearing Srila Prabhupada speaking on the, on the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And this is at the, in our Krishna Meditations book where Krishna says, I am the father and I am the mother. And Prabhupada said, how is Krishna the mother? And he was saying, again, Krishna and his energies are non-different. So as Durga is the mother, but that's actually a manifestation of Krishna. So I think that goes into our category. Can anybody remember, I know this was a long time ago, but can anyone remember from our list that Prabhupada gave in this purport as to what's in the Brahma Samhita? 
what category this goes under. Yes? Excellent. And if I had Burfi here, you would get a big piece. Do we have any Maha Sweets in the Pujari? A whole tray. A whole tray. <laughs> okay, you get one. You get one for us. You can give one to yourself for reciting the verse. Can you also give? Can you also give one to this gentleman here? Excellent. What did he say? He said Jiva Goswami's commentary on the third verse says that Krishna and Durga are identical. By the way, a little plug here. So I, I arranged for one devotee to illustrate the Brahma Samhita, the translation by Banu Swami with Jiva Goswami's commentary. It's, the, it's a square book format, hard to get, but it's really nice because some, especially, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and one for you too, for reciting the sloka. There you go. Um, I think every class I should have like Maha Sweets. <laughs> Actually, in, in my little book on chanting Hare Krishna, the, the one that I did the last and was the hardest was to write on the second offense because there's three ways that, that it's explained and the ways seem mutually contradictory. So Durga is Krishna, but she's not. Actually, actually, Prabhupada's commentary in the purport to that verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, I am the mother and the father, Prabhupada says, actually, our mother and our father are nothing but Krishna. So he's not only identifying the big mother Durga with Krishna, but he's identifying your mother and my mother, your mother, your mother, your father with Krishna. So how's that for a Chintabeya Beta Tattva? Now, oh, this is going to be hard, but now we've lost the Maha Sweets to get out. So this is going to be really hard. I don't know if anybody will be able to do this one. So in the four categories, so this statement that Durga is the same as Krishna or your mother and father are the same as Krishna, is that a restatement of Siddhanta, of a Chintabeda Beta Tattva? Is it taking a Chintabeda Beta Tattva and applying it to a particular context? Is it supporting a Chintabeda Beta Tattva or is it opposed to a Chintabeda Beta Tattva? Second. Woohoo! Any more sweets? <laughs> yes. In other words, it's taking the Siddhanta of a Chintabeda Beta Tattva and applying it to Krishna's relationship with Durga or Krishna's relationship with our own mother and father. Is that at least somewhat clear to everybody? <coughs> at least something? 25% clear to everybody? Achincha beta beta tattva! Oh, that's big. And let's take a particular instance. How does that apply in a particular instance? My mother is also Krishna. Because everything is Krishna and everyone is Krishna. But my mother's not Krishna. She is and she isn't. Inconceivably. Yes. Is there a line? There is one, yes. Needs to travel. Wonderful thing about uh, Christian consciousness that um, certainly uh, uh, this differentiation between man and woman 
uh, in Krumpa, um, in sort of certain women's lib and this sort of thing. But actually, um, if we boil it down to basically we're all spirit souls, which is... Uh, An item of Siddhanta. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting aspect because uh, even the men are female. Um, oh my goodness. Because there is a uh, very expansion of this uh, energy. So um, if, uh, uh, though we have a, a cultural uh, thing to take into account, um, it's, um, it's uh, the, the man and the woman are supposed to be complementary in their um, uh, the service to Krishna. And I was just thinking of. Um, Gauri Shurdas Babaji was asked a question, I think it was uh, Rupa Vilas pointed out, that he was asked, somebody asked him about the advice uh, for marriage. And, uh, and he said uh, basically that uh, you have to understand that they're both Vaishnavs or Vaishnavis. And in, in other words, that he explained in such a way that he says every morning, you first, when you wake up, you offer obeisances to each other. And then he described that actually you uh, eat each other's remnants. And uh, to, to point out the difference, that both are servants of Krishna. But not only that, you have to remember that um, this woman. It's Krishna's dasi, not your dasi. And uh, likewise, the woman has to understand that uh, this, this gentleman here is Krishna's dasi, not your dasi. Yes, that is actually the essence yeah. of any good relationships, not only between husband and wife, yeah. but to remember that I'm not really these designations. As soon as we have the designations, then we have ideas of entitlement and expectations. You know, yes. my, my mother has to be a good mother, however I define it. And my mother has to accept that I'm a good son or a good daughter. And we get very offended when those things don't seem to be operative. But if we remember that, that's not what this is about. What this is about is I'm Krishna's servant. The example I like to give is the, the secret agent principle, that we're actually Krishna's servant, and just like a secret agent takes on a cover identity. You don't go into North Korea and say, hi, I'm a British spy. Right? You say, I'm an English teacher or something like that. So all of our upadis are just cover stories. I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a banker, I'm a whatever, you know, I'm a doctor. I'm a ditch digger, whatever. I'm a servant of Krishna, and the company, I work for Krishna's company. He's my employer. And what's his product? What's his product? Krishna Prema, nice product. You get to sell it and eat it. And everyone I'm dealing with, they're either a supervisor in the Krishna Prema company, or they're a colleague, or they're a customer, or they're a potential customer. Maybe right now they shop in the illusion mall. And my external new potties are just a cover story in order to work in Krishna's company. 
So now I'm going to ask, so the statements we find in the Shastra about duties according to these designations, duties according to Brahmaksatri Vaishya Sudra, Brahmachari Grahastha Vanaprastha Sanyas, men and women, are those restatements of Siddhanta? Are they contextualized Siddhanta? Are they supporting Siddhanta? Yes, they're supporting Siddhanta. They're not contextualizations of Siddhanta because they're not, they're not universal, eternal truths applied to a context. They're all relative truths. Do you follow? Do, the duties, do these duties change in time? Do the duties of Ksatriya, are they different now than they were 5,000 years ago? Yes? You're not sure? Do you want to kill people at weddings? Would that be cool today? Well, it's my Ksatriya duty. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Did they kill people at weddings? Yeah. Yes? Anybody read Krishna book? Do any of you read Krishna book? They kill people at weddings. Not always, but sometimes happens, and nobody paid much attention to it. It wasn't a crime. It wasn't that long ago here in the UK you could do a duel and it wasn't a crime, correct? Yeah. Right? You could settle things by duels. Nobody was charged with murder. Am I correct? These things change. They're not eternal, universal things. Those sort of details. So, practically all the really difficult statements we have are in this third category of supporting Siddhanta. They're not Siddhanta in and of themselves. And you're bringing up the difference. So that's very nice. Anybody else? Oh, let's give someone else a chance. The finishing touch was that, in other words, the marriage is that you're helping each other to come back to Krishna. That should mean, why just marriage? Always. Everything. Every dealing I have with any other living entity should be like that. Yeah? We had... Good point. Thank you. Hi, Krishna. Hi, Krishna. Um, you said that you know, mercy is always... There is always available. Correct. Sometimes we're, we're accepted to it and then we're, we surrender onto that. Yes. Um, and sometimes we're not so receptive. Yeah, well, how can we help? How, what helps when we're not so surrendered? Like, it's really, really difficult to accept things. What I think you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that sometimes we're in a particular framework where we're not really open to philosophy to help us accept mercy. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, like we're very emotional about it. We're, we become emotional rather than philosophical. Does this happen to everybody? Yeah? And you can especially see it happening to other people. Have you seen this happening? If you don't think it happens to yourself. Then at least you've seen this happen with other people? That when they're in an emotional state, they're not receptive to philosophy? Have you seen this? And that if you try to preach philosophy to them, what happens? They just get disturbed. It just it actually makes it worse. They dig deeper into their emotions. By the way, there's a biochemical reason for this. 
and that is, uh, it's called the sympathetic nervous system. So when our brain detects a possible threat to our existence, it puts out stress hormones that ready our cells for fight or flight or freeze. So in case we're being chased by a pack of dogs or a tiger. And it also operates if somebody, if or we believe somebody has insulted us in some way, or someone's disrespected us in some way, or we're not going to get something that we need. Our, our brain is pretty simple in this regard, and it has nanoseconds to decide because you don't want to really meditate on, is this really a tiger that's going to bite me or not? So it very, very quickly decides there might be danger. And what the brain does, it releases a cascade of chemicals that ready us for defense. And this cascade of chemicals, we interpret this as emotions such as fear and anger. Right? And the effects of these, it puts energy into our arms and legs, quite a bit, frankly. Um, it reduces energy going to our stomach and our digestive system. It reduces energy going to our immune system. And it turns off our higher order thinking skills. Because if a pack of dogs is chasing you, you don't want to be doing calculus. <laughs> it gives us a laser-sharp focus from like the animalistic parts of our brain to protect ourselves. So while we're in that state of this chemical bath, our ability to think philosophically is practically non-existent. It's not like someone's fault. It doesn't mean that they're not sincere or something. If somebody's very upset about something, whatever it may be, grief, guilt, fear, anger, their, their actual ability to think philosophically is biologically compromised. I mean, it's interesting when uh, Lord Chinanda kicked Shivananda Sane and Shivananda Sane's nephew felt that his uncle had been insulted which would mean that he felt that he was insulted, by the way. He was very angry, and he left the party, and he went ahead, and he went to see Lord Chaitanya, and he offered obeisances without removing his upper wrapper, and one of the devotees, I forget who, commented on this and said, he hasn't taken off his wrapper, which was the etiquette in those days. And Mahabharu was like, he's upset. It's okay. And immediately, Shivananda Sain's nephew could understand that Lord Chaitanya knew everything that had gone on, and he was immediately pacified. So what are we going to do in times of great emotional distress, which can be anger, fear, grief, guilt, shame, confusion, helplessness, when we lose the capacity temporarily to think philosophical? So there is a, a lot of instruction, especially in the Bhagavad Gita, and also in the Bhagavatam, on how to deal with this. What I really, really like is the second chapter. When people tell me it's too hard, I say, the Bhagavad Gita is a beginning scripture. Prabhupada says it all the time. Am I correct? Okay. The second chapter is the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita. So it's not, it can't be too hard. Okay. Second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita instructions cannot be for Prahlad Maharaj only. Just, sorry, can't. If you want to argue about CC, Ancha, that's something else. But if you're going to argue about Bhagavad Gita chapter 2, sorry, beginner. And materialists can do this, folks. So it, it's not just for the Prahlad Maharajas. So Krishna tells you the cascade. 
You contemplate the objects of the senses, you develop attachment, the attachment turns into lust, the lust turns into anger, the anger turns into bewilderment, and you lose your memory. Yes, that's the cascade. He tells you this is what happens. And we like those verses. And then somehow we don't look at the next ones. Vaishishikapabhu does. He sings it for prasadam. Because it says you get Bhagavad prasadam, so he sings it for prasadam. Of course, it's a little facetious, because Krishna is not talking about samosas. He says that, well, I'm sure samosas are included, but that wasn't his main. That wasn't the context. <laughs> he wasn't saying to Arjuna, if you do this, I'll give you a samosa. So he was saying that you become free from attachment and aversion, and you regulate your senses, and then you will get Bhagavad prasadam. Because we're talking about getting mercy, yes? Become free from attachment and aversion. So as soon as you notice, best thing is if you can notice at the contemplation stage. Now this happens very fast. <coughs> Sorry, the, I've been long. <coughs> under the weather. So the brain does this in fractions of a second. So it takes some practice to notice the, the choice point between contemplation and attachment, and between attachment and lust, and between lust and anger. Once you get to the anger, the bewilderment of memories is going to kick in. Your intelligence lost is going to kick in, at least for a while. So to notice this space <coughs> and be able to just move back and say, um, the observer. This is attachment and aversion. Um, the observer. And like the rivers going into the ocean. It's just a river flowing into the ocean. It's just a biochemical reaction. I'm not this body. I'm safe. Nobody can hurt me. Not a dog. Not an insulting person. Not a disrespectful person. Not some tragedy in my life. Not some betrayal. I'm safe. I'm the soul. I'm safe. I'm the observer. Now, that takes some practice. And it's best to practice it with little things. So that you can become expert in practicing it with the big things. Now, if you do that, the brain will understand that you're safe and the chemicals will dissipate after 90 seconds. And then you can go read the Brahma Samhita. <laughs> now, if there actually is a danger, the brain is designed to keep that going for about 20 minutes. The problem is when we identify it, when we justify it, when we make up stories about why we should keep feeling the way we're feeling. I have a right to feel angry. We start telling ourselves all these stories about it. I have a right to feel like this. I have a right to feel like that. I should feel like this. I should feel guilty. I should feel ashamed. I should feel whatever. And we, we become attached to those feelings. And then we put ourselves into that cycle. Or we hate the feelings. We try to, to make them go away. You can't. It's an automatic cycle. It's like a sprinkler that turns on, it's, you know, or an alarm that, you know, you, you can't just like make it go away. I'm just going to conquer this anger. I'm going to conquer this guilt. 
you actually make it stronger because then you're communicating to the brain, there's a problem, and then the brain thinks, oh, there's a problem, and the brain keeps the dangerous system going even more. So the more you try to repress that stuff, the more you have aversion, the more you feed it. So you can feed it by getting into it. Oh, this is me, and this is how I feel, and it's important, and I have to act on it, and I have to get into it. Or I hate this, it's not me, I'm going to repress it. Either way, you're, you're going to make the whole thing worse. It's not me. All right, that's a basic technique. You want to know an advanced technique? Yes. Yes? yes. Okay. This technique only works if you know Shastra. If you don't know Shastra, it doesn't work. Basic technique, anybody can do. Bhagavad Gita, second chapter, you can teach it to non-devotees on the street, they can do it. Or at least most of the time. And the higher you are in the modes, the easier it is for you to do it. When you're in Thomas, any little thing looks like danger. You're very easily insulted and offended. When you're in Rajas, a little less so. When you're in Sattva, hardly anything shakes you. So it depends on where you are in the modes, what your body, what your brain is going to consider to be dangerous. Hmm? But you can teach it to anybody. Okay, this next one, you have to know Shastra. You have to know Shastra. You have to know the personalities of Shastra. You have to know Lila, or it, you, you can't do it. So we were talking about Rasa. So Rasa has all these bobs. It has the Stai bobs. It has the Vyavitari bobs. Anything that we can feel materially, which is just a bunch of biochemicals, by the way, has its original component in the soul, which is actually tasty. Have you ever seen a picture of some animal trying to eat a cardboard pitcher or something? So our material emotions are not tasty. Even our so-called positive emotions, joy and wonder and romantic love and friendship, they're not really tasty. They're, 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 just experience, they're just biochemicals of the mind and body that we're identifying with like watching a film. But the spiritual emotions are actually tasty. And we, the soul, can taste them. So find an equivalent spiritual emotion. Now to do this, you have to think of a Leela and you have to think of a person in that lila, not a demon. <laughs> Sometimes I tell people this, thinking of a demon. Not a demon. Because they're not experiencing rasa. They're experiencing at best raspas. It's got to be Krishna or a devotee. And start meditating, not on the plot, but how they're feeling And start absorbing yourself in that devotee's emotion. Srila Rupa Goswami in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu spends quite a bit of time explaining this particular spiritual technique. Into the Northern Ocean. So he talks about just like materially in a drama, the audience takes on the emotions of the characters that are being portrayed. Yes, we have all had this experience that you will feel the emotions of the characters in the drama as if they are yours. And he says, that can operate spiritually. He says, if you're seeing a drama or hearing about the great personalities, you can experience their emotions. And Prabhupada says, if we experience the emotions of the pure devotees even to a minute degree, <coughs> then we become perfect. So let's say that I was dealing with some devotees who were wrongly accused of things and who were exiled from a temple. Top, top, top preachers. 
It ended up to be about, anyway, something else. Years they had, they were dealing with this. Years before it finally got resolved. And they were regularly consulting with me, and I remember one time talking to them, and the husband was in so much distress. I said, Prabhu, can you think of anything in the scripture where there's some similar emotions? And he said, yes, when the Pandavas were exiled unfairly. And I said, okay, who do you want to meditate on? He said, Nakul. I said, great. How was he feeling? And this devotee starts describing how Nakula must have been feeling. And within two, three minutes of describing how Nakula was feeling, he started feeling that, and he said, my material stuff is gone. I'm like, yeah, that's how it works. I was talking to one woman in, uh, when the pandemic first started, and her husband was had been out of town, and then he couldn't travel, he couldn't get a flight, and they were separated for quite some time, and she was really going through a lot of grief. And I said, can you think of someone in the scripture who was separated from their husband? Who, who would that be? Sita, who else? Kunti, well that's by death, so it's a little different. Vishnu Priya. Rukmini. We, we picked um, Rohini. Did you ever think about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about Rohini. Yeah. In Vrindavan, Vasudeva's in Mathura. And she's raising Balaram alone. I mean, she has Jasoda and she has Nandamaraj, but she doesn't have her husband. And don't you want to share that? And if you were her parents, you know, you want, oh, he just spoke. He just got a tooth. He just rolled over. He's crying. And we, we actually wrote a poem about Rohini and really sort of meditating on how Rohini felt. And as we, we went deeper and deeper, then all of the, the grief she felt materially just was like fog in the sun. Is that all right? And now we definitely should end. It's after nine, and now it's time for the other kind of Bhagavad Prasad. Thank you very much. Shiva Prabhupada Ki Jai.